and we're live. Well, hello everyone and welcome to this, which I think is now the fourth of Practico's Cost Chats Between Friends, which is our replacement for the breakfast meeting with the bacon sarni and the nice uh, meeting surrounds, which of course we no longer enjoy. Um, the friends on this particular occasion are myself, a consultant at Practico, uh, Jeremy Morgan, uh, Andy Ellis, the MD of Practico, and our guest today is Alex Hutton QC, a cost specialist at Hailsham Chambers, who will be well known to most of you. Um, we hope we've got an exciting agenda this morning. We're going to have a chat about guideline hourly rates, about uh, a possible new cost war, and uh, budget variations and the new rules on how to apply for those. Um, Alex will be doing most of the talking, but as it is a chat between friends, Andy and I will chip in where we feel appropriate and, and have a, a more round discussion than the simple lecture format. I wanted to ask though, by uh, as we are um, increasingly, it seems, um, in the grips of COVID, I wanted to ask Alex uh, what impact he thought COVID had had and would have in the medium and long term on cost practice and uh, on his own practice as a, not just a cost practitioner, but also a clinical negligence practitioner. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Um, I'm sorry we can't make up for the bacon sandwich, but uh, we should try and do our best. Um, the impact of COVID on working practices um, um, has been remarkable in the law. I mean, we, Hailsham Chambers, do um, various talks um, online and our surveys during those talks suggested about over 90% of practitioners are working almost exclusively or exclusively at home. So that has been an extraordinary change. I think people have adapted well because I think lawyers do, cost lawyers do, they adapt. Um, and um, the reality is we've learned that we can do most of the job at home uh, with a computer. Um, the other aspect is that the um, Senior Courts Costs Office has done well, in my view, I don't know what Andy's view is, in terms of adjusting. Um, they uh, have hearings, their hearings have proceeded. There have been very few that have been adjourned as a result of COVID. Um, they may have been slightly slow off, off the mark, but now they're using Microsoft Teams, which is a good platform, better than Skype for Business, in my view. They've got a practice direction for remote hearings, and um, it, which requires you to, to file e-bundles, et cetera, et cetera. I think practitioners are learning, and I think the SCCO has learned, and I think generally my, my view is that they have done a good job and that the, the ship has been steady. Um, in relation to the kind of sort of wider... Uh, context, certainly I have seen absolutely no reduction in the amount of cost disputes that I'm involved in um, so far. Um, I, I'd be interested to know what, what, what both you think about that. Um, in terms of the commercial context, obviously, you know, we're facing presumably um, a significant recession um, and that's going to have impacts in terms of commercial litigation. Um, you know, there's been some suggestion that third party funding, for instance, has actually, um, in a sense, come more to the fore as a result of COVID, because firstly, people are using third party funders more and will do so more because they need to get funding. They can't fund the case themselves. Um, secondly, they might be chasing litigation, which was potentially out there, but they haven't bothered to chase, but they need the funds now. So they're going to start chasing litigation. And thirdly, of course, you know, if, if you're on the other side of a claim that's that, that's that's brought by third party funding, uh, you may think that you're not going to get the money from um, the other side. You have to get it from the funder um, because uh, money is tight. So third party funders are perhaps more in the firing line in relation to that. Uh, you know, inevitably in recessions, and we've seen them before, you know, the three of us have been around for a while, we've seen recessions, certain types of litigation thrive um, in recessions. I mean, particularly, obviously, insolvency type, type of litigations. But, you know, it's, it's worth bearing in mind, not all companies are suffering in this COVID um, mm. crisis. Um, some companies have thrived, particularly the tech companies, obviously. Um, things like the housing market has not collapsed yet. Uh, whether it will, we'll see. But, uh, you know, collapse of housing market of, of, often results in, in a lot of litigation. Um, but it hasn't collapsed. Um, so it is a bit of a mixed picture out there. 
um, in terms of in terms of the impact medium long term. I think the reality is we'll all be working more from home. We'll all be doing hearings more from home. I, I hope that will continue because um, in many contexts it works. If you don't have to cross examine witnesses, for instance, which often in the cost context you're not, it works. And so I think you know we'll all, we'll all have to adjust to that. And I think we've already started that process. Mm. Well, what do you think, Ali, Andy? Oh, I I agree with that. I, and um, first of all, uh, you know, I'm very grateful that, you know, we seem to so far um, not have suffered a downturn in our business as a direct result of COVID. Um, and, you know, we know there are so many sectors out there that uh, where people's uh, jobs and income is very insecure. So we count our blessings. I try to do that as often as I can. Um, and hope it continues because I think we're all probably aware that you know economically the worst is yet to come. And I remember, you know, if we go back to the last biggest fallout from uh, the, the, the GFC in 2008, um, whereas uh, I think historically um, recessions tended to be quite good for litigation, um, then that one was so deep that people didn't even have the money to fight. You know, so <laughs> so whilst there were Whilst it spawned a massive industry in terms of misbehaviour by banks and the like and the type of sort of class actions and equivalent that could take place against them. This time round, you know, as ever, you know, ingenious lawyers whose ingenuity we rely on because they feed us at the end of the day will no doubt, you know, spot the opportunities and the needs um, and uh, chase the checkbooks and maybe it's the tech companies and the big uh, 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 that, that will have to put up the uh, uh, put up defenses to all types of actions um, uh, along with the you know the obvious ones that, that Alex has already talked about um, so it's not I mean I don't tend to crystal ball gaze too much because you know the people who give us work do that all the time um, in terms of our own business we um, we, we, we were fortunate to the extent that we we had a fair amount of remote working anyway. So it was just a question of just increasing that level and beefing up um, uh, some of our systems and processes so that we could communicate better with each other, which, we, which we've been doing. Uh, I, we're also fortunate that we've had the same team for a long time now, you know, um, and I think it would be much more difficult to introduce new people into an existing team where we all know each other and our cultures and is already set uh, and we haven't had to do that and we've got no plans to do that. Um, um, interesting takes from from two sides of the fence on these um, these difficult times. Um, I won't add anything um, from my side because uh, I'm in Italy and the whole experience there has been completely different. Mm. Um, but moving on to something that um, last happened when I was still in practice, it's as long ago as that, <laughs> The last revision of guideline hourly rates was 2010, and as is well known, nothing has happened since then. We thought we'd like to talk a little bit about developments which are taking place in guideline hourly rates, um, which may not be everyone's uh, bread and butter, particularly those who are um, more of a commercial bent. Um, but the reality is that guideline hourly rates do determine what you get on summary assessment. And so they enable you to advise your clients about what uh, costs you're going to recover if you're successful and what costs they're exposed to if they are successful. And of course, it has a knock-on impact on uh, the rates outside summary assessment in detailed assessments and in agreeing costs. So an important development which uh, Alex is going to introduce. Thanks, Jeremy. Well, you, you know, you, you and Andy will remember, long remember battles about hourly rates. There used to be an attempt <clears throat> to apply some sort of science to it, to actually work out what it costs to run the business and then to add a percentage on top for profit. Um, and that was, you know, in the pre-CPR days. It wasn't ideal, it was difficult, it was patchy, etc. But there was an attempt at science. Um, but then you had this strange concept that you would add and you would have an A figure for the cost and the B figure, which would be your profit, percentage profit on top. And of course, that wasn't sort of great for clients to have this kind of strange hybrid thing. So um, the CPR, when it came in in 1999, provided for 
rates, which were simply just uh, a, a broad averages for their areas, guideline hourly rates, um, which no longer was made up of A plus B. They may have had some input in 1999 in terms of what it actually cost to do the work, uh, but that quickly disappeared because the rates were simply just increased generally by RPI every year um, until 2010. Um, and um, so, so, so there it was. And then after 2010, they stopped updating it. Um, they, the rates were somewhat contentious because it was said by firms who got bulk business, for instance, from insurers or the like, that actually you could do the work for a lot less than those rates and that those rates overstated matters. Um, but there it was, it was left in 2010. There was then a review that was ordered um, by, I think, by the Master of the Rules. Mr. Justice Foskett did a review in 2014 in which he tried to get some evidence base as to change the guideline hourly rates, which were stuck by then for four years. And he produced a report which suggested changes, but it was pretty thin stuff. And Lord Dyson, then Master of the Rules, simply rejected it and said there's just not enough evidence base here, uh, 2010 rates will continue to apply. And that's been the case um, since then. Um, there have been murmurings about the fact that these are completely out of date. Uh, and in particular, Mrs. Justice O'Farrell in a case called Open Operations and Invesco Fund Managers last year said that the situ whole situation was unsatisfactory. She was actually carrying out a, a summary assessment uh, where those rates are supposed to be at least the starting point uh, on a summary assessment. She said, well, you know, what use is 10 year old guideline hourly rates to me? Um, there's much debate and there's much difference in terms of um, judges as to how far they take them into account. I suspect the more savvy ones uh, don't take a great deal of account of them, but the, the less savvy ones, uh, they're a useful prop to use, um, albeit becoming less useful now that they're 10 years old. Anyways, really as a result, I think, of what Mrs Justice O'Farrell said, the Civil Procedure Rules Committee set up a subcommittee in March of this year to, to look at guideline hourly rates and what's to be done. They appointed Mr Justice Stewart to head it, which was a very good idea because Mr Justice Stewart is one of those savvy costs people uh, who actually really knows what he's talking about. In fact, I remember doing uh, doing it, um, the Maramau litigation before Mr Justice Stewart, and we Nicholas Bacon and I were arguing about um, uh, the, the rates and he got out his calculator and he did a whole load of calculations and he said I'm not going to tell you what I'm actually putting into my calculation because I'm not allowed to tell you what hourly rates I'm putting in for a, a, a budgeting exercise, cost exercise, but he knew all the rates that he was doing and he applied it and he gave <coughs> us the figures, um, but he said when I'm not allowed to tell you how those figures were made up. So Mr Justice Stewart knows what he's doing. Um, the, 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 the subcommittee is gathering evidence. The evidence it's gathering, of course, is not what it costs to do the work. The evidence that is gathering is what clients are being charged to do the work, um, the market. Uh, and so um, he's gathering evidence, for instance, for every detailed assessment from the 1st of September to the 27th of November as to what's claimed for the rates and what's been allowed for the rates. And then a further historic review back to April 2019 in terms of what's being agreed on the rates. And I think, uh, Andy, you, you may talk to this, but uh, Master Gordon Saker, who's part of that review, has, has recently sent out um, a, an email to, amongst others, I suspect, Practico, asking for evidence from them. Um, so that's where we are in terms of that. In the meantime, there was a decision in a case called PLK um, by Master Whalen very recently in relation to quarter protection costs. Now, quarter protection costs are a slightly strange beast because there is strong guidance that only guideline hourly rates should be uh, recovered, um, except in exceptional circumstances in that litigation. And um, Master Whalen um, dealt with a series of cases, appeals from cost officers, where he held that the guideline hourly rates were unsatisfactory because they were so old. Uh, there was evidence that uh, salaries, for instance, of fee earners have gone up significantly in recent years. And um, so he applied an across the board increase of 20%, uh, which was 
um, on his analysis um, over the last three, a few years, uh, an increase um, reflective of the consumer price index, not the RPI, because the RPI would have given a much bigger increase. Uh, and so that's the guidance. There's been a practice note from Martha Gordon Saker. The important thing, of course, in relation to that is you can't get more on your hourly rates if you haven't put it in your retainer with your client, um, because obviously the indemnity principle applies and you cannot recover more than you've put in your retainer to your client. Um, so, so that's been dealt with. There's the, there was a recent decision, for instance, of Master Rowley in a case called Shulman and Kolmoyski, where Master Rowley said, really guideline hourly rates for a huge commercial case um, were um, pretty useless on detailed assessment. He didn't quite use those words. He allowed, for instance, at rates up to £750 an hour, whereas the top guideline hourly rate for the city um, is still and has been for 10 years stuck at 409. Of course, that was a lot less than was claimed. It was over over a thousand was claimed. So, um, but he, 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 he cast aside um, guideline hourly rates. Um, so that's where we go. I mean, in terms of, in terms of how it impacts on on you, on clients, um, obviously you you know you will want to recover as much as you can if you're recovering your costs, and therefore it's in your interest that guideline hourly rates go up. Um, albeit that in big commercial litigation, obviously the cost judges will depart from them in any event. We await to see what happens in relation to the review, but it is important to note that it appears to be market driven in terms of its figures rather than actual evidence of cost driven because. They simply can't get the evidence and people won't give them the evidence to do that. But, but by market, they're just looking at what's being claimed and allowed or, or agreed. And so um, that in itself uh, means that the new rates will be constrained by what's happened in the 10 years when there haven't been uh, any increases in the guideline rates. It's a kind of self-perpetuating system because obviously in lots of cases, people will have been claiming lower rates than they otherwise would because guideline rates said so. So it's a difficult situation, isn't it? It is, and I, I, I completely agree. And, and what they make of the data, we'll, we'll have to see, but, but the data may be flawed in a number of respects. Mm. I mean, I think if, anticipating the, the, the issues that we would have supplying data, um, if we're representative of the independent cost um, sector as a whole, um, rather like litigation generally, um, the vast majority of cases settled before detailed assessment. Very good reason to come to us for data because the um, uh, obviously the SCC only know about decisions they've made on cases that they've uh, that, that they adjudicated upon, uh, and they need a wider uh, uh, they need a wider pool of, of data. Um, we know from all the cases that we've got as far as as, as points of disputes and replies on what each side's position has been, but that 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 very rarely, if ever, results in an agreement over a particular element mm. you know all it does is you know each side then then hunkers down and just 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 puts their calculations in to come up with a new overall part 36 offer or all-inclusive you know a, a quarterback type offer so you don't know but the, the only things you know from cases that have settled is is where certain rates may have been conceded yeah. Um, but but I, I think I'm yet to have a, a, a situation on a I'm yet to see a situation on a reply where replies to point to dispute come in and say all right then <laughs> we'll, we'll agree to that hourly rate you know even 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 if you can uh, even if you can infer that they have for a through, through a subsequent agreement you can't be sure of it because obviously it's part of the you know there's the coefficient of time and and rate um, uh, so I. I wonder we could we could end up um, doing a heap of work that might not be of massive value um, to to the people that are uh, uh, that are uh, assimilating it, um, but we shall see. I mean, we we want to we obviously want to cooperate if we can, and if we can shed any light on it rather than just throwing lots of data at it that that hasn't got any analysis behind it or context behind it, then we, we, we certainly will. Um, well, let's hope it's not rejected like it was in, in um, 2014, yeah. so that we have I mean, another 10 years while we've got absolutely. inadequate evidence. But, but I mean, just as the march towards looking at, at market rather than cost, I completely agree with Alex. I think we, we've gone, we've crossed the Rubicon on that now. 
Um, and it, it was in the early days of, uh, of people seeking to depart from guideline hourly rates in 2010, um, you tended to get anecdotal um, decisions that were saying, well, as far as I'm, you know, we're in a recession, as far as I'm concerned, rates should be going down, if anything. And, and, certainly the, and certainly there was a period when, you know, the market was certainly suppressing hourly rates rather than, uh, rather than allowing a, some sort of um, rather clever legal inflation rate that, that went beyond yeah, everybody else's RPI or CPI. Um, but uh, the, which was, I mean, it is overdue. Um, the only thing that continues to bug me um, is, uh, and th that, that, that door's closed now, um, is why you can't have some form of hourly rate argument on a budget hearing. No, I, could, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, perhaps the most useful data would, would, would be obtained from the budgeting um, uh, 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 process that's been going on, because, of course, that happens in a substantial percentage of cases, um, uh, whereas detailed assessment happens in an infinitesimally small percentage of cases. But, um, you know, apart from a few judges like Mr. Justice Warby, who's now Lord Justice Warby, who does set rates um, on a budgeting hearing, um, the, the clear guidance is not to do so in the practice direction. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, a bit like my example of Mr. Justice Stewart, even though he knew what rate he was applying, he said he thought that he wasn't allowed to tell us. So we yeah, don't he, have that information. He just blended it in with, every, with everything else to come to a decision. Yeah. But, but, you know, we've got, you know, I remember um, at the outset of, um, news group phone hacking budget hearings, there was a full-blown old-fashioned rate argument between Mr Morgan QC, who was on the side of the claimants, and Nicholas Bacon QC, who was on the side of the defendants. And, you know, it, it didn't take more than three hours. I'm joking. It didn't, it didn't take more than <laughs> 20 minutes before um, Mr Justice Boss, as he then was. Um, and, you know, but because that litigation has been very long running you know I can tell you that those budget rates that have been that were set at the time have helped to narrow parameters in literally hundreds of cases that have followed on from that since now I'm not suggesting that the, the world has stood still in that case since something like May 2012 it hasn't but you know it, it there's been pragmatic uh, accommodations made um, so that rates are not a hugely hot topic uh, on that case at the moment, even though lots of other cost issues remain to be. That's interesting. I must say I was 45 when I saw that it was Mr. Justice Stewart who was in charge of this committee, because yeah. I think there will be a practical solution. Um, his experience, of course, goes back to the days when he was a circuit judge in Liverpool and Manchester, and he, he just delivered judgment after judgment on costs and he really knew it uh, very well. He had an understanding which uh, most even circuit judges uh, didn't have. So I think that's that's good news. And he's also, I mean, he's also recognised as being essentially fair. He, he's not he's not thought of as a pro-claimant person no. or pro-defendant person. He, he, you know, he, he views it on the merits and he's, he's, he's absolutely the right chap to do it. Yeah. Um, moving on then, um, technical thing we'll have to, to see what happens with that. But um, I think we're all agreed it's, it's good news in, in, in general that there is a revision process going on. Um, something that people may not be quite so happy about is the next uh, topic we're going to talk about, which is, is there a new cost war starting up? Not inter parties like the last one, but more about solicitor and, uh, and own client uh, fees. Uh, I just looked before this uh, call on the internet for various uh, companies that are specializing in this field and I came across checkmylegalfees.com, challengelegalfees.co.uk, complaintaboutsolicitors.co.uk. It seems to be a whole new industry uh, and of course it, it's got plenty of material to work on with the, the complexities and technicalities of the Solicitors Act. Um, what do you say about that Alex? Yeah, so I mean, it is is obviously a thriving industry with 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 all these 
I'm sure, um, highly respectable and 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 very uh, very uh, learned firms that are doing this. I mean, it's all they do, so presumably they are quite good at it. But uh, it it looks a bit sort of pile them high, sell them cheap stuff. And I think that's generally what they're doing. They're doing mostly, I suspect, the kind of road traffic act um, cases. Um, and uh, they're doing it in the context where you can no longer recover success fees from the other side and therefore any success fee that is charged to the client is going to come out of their damages and is going, is going to be contentious um, and so there's, there's been an industry in relation to that um, you know that's affected the market to some extent more widely than that in terms of the irrecoverability of success fees and or ATE um, premiums because um, clients are, are being faced with more shortfalls than they used to be uh, and there's certainly I mean I think all cost practitioners um, have noticed uh, an increase in disputes between sisters and clients um, you know one of the one of the issues that that, that uh, has come to the fore in the last few years is the matter of informed consent by the client and CPR 46.9, um, which is a provision as Jeremy and Andy will know, um, ha has quite a long history, has a presumption that if the client has agreed the figures in the, in, in the bill, then there's a presumption that those, uh, those fees are reasonable. Um, and I, in my experience, wasn't wasn't massively relied on um, in in the old days. There was a case that I think Jeremy and Andy were both involved, called McDougall and uh, Boot Eskerton, um, where um, it was held that that consent for the client to effectively not necessarily lose their right to assessment, but uh, almost um, by agreeing fees, the client had to uh, give informed consent. They had to know what that they were agreeing before um, the fees were presumed to be reasonable. Um, that was given uh, more wind in its sails by the decision, I think a couple of years ago called Herbert and HH Law, which was classically one of these, you know, you challenge my fees.com um, kind of cases. It was a, it was a road traffic case where hundred percent success fee was charged to the client and the client, um, because it was charged in every case, that was their, the, the solicitor's um, uh, modus operandi. And the court of appeal said that that's, if you're going to do that, um, then you're going to have to explain that to the client. And the client did not know that that was the, the situation and that they wouldn't recover hundred percent because the, you know, on the facts of the case, hundred percent was wasn't justified and they held that there had to be a full and fair explanation to the client um, before they uh, were, were uh, uh, held to give approval and the burden was on the solicitor to prove that the client had given that informed consent. Now I mean certainly I've seen a lot of cases over the last few years more in the commercial context where um, the solicitors are relying on this provision for instance they're sending clients bills in draft um, during the litigation, they're saying, here's your bill. If you have any issue in relation to it, then tell us by X date. Otherwise, we'll just issue it. Um, and in my experience, clients who are in the midst of commercial litigation are not going to devote a great deal of time going through the minutiae of their solicitor's bill until they've fallen out with the solicitors, uh, which they haven't at that point. So this client inevitably, in most cases, simply does nothing or says fine. Uh, the bill is issued and then the client, the litigation goes south or the client falls out with the solicitors or suddenly there's, you know, chasing for a million pounds to be paid um, by next Tuesday, otherwise we'll, we'll uh, end the retainer, etc. And it all blows up and the client turns around and goes, well, I'm not happy with your goss. And the solicitor goes, but you agreed them. We sent them to you and you agreed them. You took no issue with them. CPR 46.9 presumed to be, to be reasonable. And that is that issue is coming up more and more. Um, I haven't actually had a decision on, on whether that is effective informed consent or not, but it, it's coming, I suspect. Um, there, was a, there was a piece of litigation, uh, commercial litigation called GHC and Winross, um, Winross being the successor to Rosenblatt's, um, in uh, which where judgment was given in August 2020 by Master James. I'm told by Andrew Post, who's appearing in that case, that that is actually being appealed. Um, but one of the decisions that Master James gave was where Rosenblatt solicitors had not served a notice of funding on the other side. This was a 
pre-LASPO CFA, so they were entitled to recover the success fee. You'd obviously have to give the notice to the other side that you're on such an arrangement. They didn't. Uh, the, cost, the, the success fee was therefore disallowed against the other side because the other side hadn't had notice. Um, uh, but on the solicitor-known client assessment, Rosenblatt's sought to claim it against the client on the basis that the client had given their consent to not serving a notice of funding because there was a tactical choice that serving a notice of funding telling the other side you're on a CFA might look weak uh, and the other side might smell a rat and think, oh, right, if they're on a CFA, they're in trouble. Um, well, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, um, that uh, argument was rejected by Master James, um, who held that uh, the client had not given their informed consent. But they would have have, to have been told uh, on that basis, look, if we don't serve this notice, it means that you're unlikely to recover the success fee for the period when you haven't served the notice. Mm. Are you happy with that? And that would constitute, in principle, informed consent. Master James held there wasn't uh, such informed consent there. Uh, and a case that I've been involved in, and in fact, um, Pratico have been involved in, although we're on opposite sides, so I have to be careful what I say, Mr. HTV and Archerfield, uh, which uh, arose out of litigation between Mr. HTV and ITV2, um, uh, where Archerfield had been their solicitors, and then uh, at the end of it, there was a fallout between them. Archerfield had provided I think it's fair to say that Andy will, uh, will, will say otherwise, very little cost information at all to the client. Um, and the client challenged the fees, but Archerfield's argument was that actually we recovered all your liability for costs from ITV2. And therefore we didn't need to give you all this information to give you informed consent, because in effect, you've recovered everything, you have to pay nothing. Uh, and that, um, it was an issue on the, on the facts as to whether he, he, he did in fact recover all his costs. But on that basis, um, uh, Master McLeod felt that there was no need to give informed consent. In effect, he'd given informed consent by his recovery of all of it from the other side and there was there being no shortfall. So, I mean, that's certainly a, a hot topic in, in my experience uh, in relation to informed consent. Uh, I think we've got some some other things to talk about about uh, uh, solicitor client challenges. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, shall I come on to those, or would you like to anyone like to come back on any of those issues first? I, I'm, I'm not going to say anything about Mr. HTV. Thought <laughs> you might say that. Somebody said, "You know, I bloody could though." <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, exactly. But no, I mean, there's the only thing I'd say is that I think there's always been. Um, potential for people to get tied up in a knot over um, this this chicken and egg argument of what should you do first? You know, should you be settling inter-parties costs before you've had a solicitor client ex assessment, or uh, is there a, a stopple point about that um, when the client has uh, not put anything in the way of a deal that clearly involves? Um, payment of the uh, contribution to inter-parties costs and a substantial contribution, I think in that case, from the other side. Um, but as I say, I'm not going to get uh, I'm not going to get hooked into that one because uh, uh, that way lies problems. <laughs> <laughs> what about the other issues? The other technical issues, then, uh, Alex? Yeah. So, well, so I mean, as some other other interesting um, points that have arisen on solicitor client assessments. Uh, I mean, for instance, the Lex Law and Zuberi case, um, which is all about uh, DBAs, damages-based agreements, and uh, resolves, at least at first instance, the long-running issue um, about whether you can, in a DBA with your client, agree that you will be paid um, time spent on an hourly rate basis if the DBA is terminated. And the argument you, you may think if you if, if you came to this new a new that that is a wholly um, uncontentious position because if the client sacks the solicitor um, particularly for not good reason then the solicitor should be able to charge for the work that they've done to date but on a DBA on the face of it the regulations regulation four in particular says that um, you uh, the only payment you can receive as a solicitor is the percentage of the damages that you provide for. So in other words, if you agreed on the face of it, a, a, 
uh, termination provision where you got paid um, in the event the client um, uh, terminated the retainer, um, then that would be in breach of regulation four. And because it's set up in similar ways to CFAs were set up a long time ago in section 58, it's in section 58AA of the same act, Courts and Legal Services Act. Um, it, the, uh, if you don't comply with the regulations, then it is unenforceable. Uh, and that has been the argument. Um, it was an argument that I had um, in a case called Harlequin, uh, where I was opposed not only by uh, Ben Williams, who I'm sure will be familiar to, to many, if not all of you, but also Nick Bacon. They both were against me, Nick Bacon for the Bar Council, where I was taking the very unattractive point that both counsel and solicitors who'd agreed a DBA together, unusually in commercial litigation, um, had had a termination provision that says if the client terminates, then we get paid um, hours spent on an hourly rate basis rather than just our uh, percentage. So you could, get, you could get paid in the event of termination. I argued that that was unlawful, unenforced. Forcible, um, and you couldn't recover anything from it. We argued it uh, for, I think, three days in front of a chancery judge. Um, he reserved judgment and then we settled it. And uh, so we didn't know what the answer was. Well, uh, it was the same argument went, for, uh, went forward to a decision in Lex Law. Um, the same argument was this is a, a termination provision which is in breach of the arrangements. You can only get your percentage. That's all you're entitled to, your contingency fee uh, and, and bad luck if the client terminates. That's just the way the regulations are. And the judge in that case um, rejected that argument and found that it was um, a, an enforceable agreement. His Honour Judge Parfit, who was sitting as a High Court judge in the Business and Property Courts, held that the whole context of DBAs um, were um, contrary to that interpretation. Um, they were introduced um, to provide a new form of access to justice. It would be, um, frankly, uh, 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 um, contrary to that purpose to have such an unworkable provision as not being allowed to be paid in the event of termination. And so he held that Regulation 4 should be interpreted that the payment, that's the only thing that you're allowed to be paid, that only applies if you win. If you lose, that provision doesn't apply. So. If you win, you're only entitled to your percentage payment. You're not entitled to anything else. Disbursements, obviously, separately, but the solicitors are only entitled to their percentage payments. But if you lose, you can get anything you like uh, that's been agreed with the client. Uh, on the face of it, that is a decision which, as far as I can see, would allow for hybrid DBAs. In other words, that um, you, 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 it's not just a termination provision. If you lose the case, you can get paid um, on an hourly rate basis. Um, and if you win the case, you can get a, a percentage, which, of course, is not what the government's intention is. The government said on a number of occasions that it doesn't favour hybrid DBAs. But on the face of his Honour Judge Parfit's decision, uh, uh, hybrid DBAs would appear to be lawful and enforceable, though you're still quite brave if you do it on a straightforward hybrid DBA, because it is only a first instance decision. As far as I know, it hasn't been appealed, but it was only in July. So uh, I don't know. I haven't spoken. I don't know either. They're not cost counsel involved. Um, so I don't know whether it's been appealed. Um, but it's still pretty bold to uh, uh, make such a, an arrangement. There are, of course, possible ways around it in terms of um, the harbour litigation model about how you do these things. Um, so um, it, it's not necessarily the case that you can't get paid at all, but if you if you lose, but certainly on the face of the DBA regulations, you're still in at some risk if you make such arrangements in your DBA that I get paid my percentage if I win, but if I lose, I get paid hours spent in hourly rates. I can say it's not enough, is it, to to turn the uh, the corner for DBAs? I mean, you you would, as you say, be pretty rich, uh, pretty um, bold to invest in the case substantially uh, in the hope that that decision gets upheld on appeal. I think that's absolutely right. I, I wouldn't advise clients to do it, to be honest, at the moment. No. And there's an interesting <laughs> thing in the regulations where the, yeah. uh, in relation to employment DBAs, there's an express provision um, which enables that to happen. And, you know, a, a straight constructionist um, lawyer sitting in the Court of Appeal will probably look and say, well, it's clear what's meant here. The, if, if it's an employment case, you've got one set of rules, and in a non-employment case, you've got another. 
Absolutely. And his own Judge Parfit used the employment rules as some support for his decision. But I agree with you. They're actually, mm-hmm. in my view, rather contrary to his decision because yeah. they've provided for it there, but they haven't provided it in non-employment cases. Mm-hmm. I think we're all agreed that um, some, at least something like the result in this case is the right result. Um, no, it's clearly and the best question, result. And the question of whether uh, it can be achieved without a, a rule change. Absolutely. It's miles away from a, you know, supporting a, a cake and eat it type uh, yeah. arrangement, which is what the um, powers that be were looking to avoid. It's nowhere near that, is it? Um, no, and, you know, I mean, the, the, the review by Rachel Mulherin and Nick Bacon, which is very helpful in terms of trying to amend this DBA regulations to make them actually workable in practice. Um, uh, you know, it may have been affected, of course, by COVID, like everything, but um, I don't detect that, that there's active enthusiasm on the part of the Ministry of Justice to Im- implement that. I could be wrong. I don't have, um, you know, any to, to what's going on, but not much has been heard uh, in relation to that review, which was obviously a, a, a very helpful and, and sensible review. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Moving on then to the last topic we're going to talk about, which is the rather technical topic of um, precedent T um, and budget variations, but clearly an important one to to all sorts of practitioners um, because it does affect the way in which you apply for uh, a variation of a budget and the costs which can be included within the scope of that variation. Yeah, so in relation to that, there is now a new rule, CPR 3.15a, so lodged in the cost management part of the rules, um, which replaces the old practice direction in relation to this point and provides that a party must revise its budgeted costs upwards or downwards, I love the or downwards, if significant developments in the litigation warrant such revisions. So it's must, if there are significant developments, you must do it. Now, the old practice direction did use the word shall do it, but um, I think that, you know, the the, the obviously semantic argument as to whether must is stronger than shall, um, but it raises an interesting argument as to whether if you don't do it and there are significant developments and then you turn around on detailed assessment and go, I want an increase in my budget under CPR 3.18 because there's good reason to do it. Will the the paying party simply say, well, you were obliged by the rules to do that prospectively during the litigation under 3.15a and therefore it's simply too late to run it on detailed assessment. We don't know um, how that's going to turn out, but it is an obvious argument on the face of it um, that's coming. Um, so the obligation is to do it promptly. There's going to be an argument, obviously, about when when, when, it's, when is promptly. Um, and um, there is a form, a lovely precedent T, which I'm sure that Andy, who's very tech savvy, has been getting to grips with. Uh, it's, it's obviously um, helpful to have a form in principle. Um, and Andy can tell you what he thinks about the form, um, but uh, it's standardised, which is much better because the, the old way of doing it was a bit of a mess. People used to do it in, in different ways when they wanted to revise their budgets. Um, so that's all helpful. It's pretty broad brush, the form. And I think you can, you know, I'm sure Andy will speak to this. I think you can hide bits that you don't really fancy very much um, on the form. Uh, and it's quite a clever form because you then have on the same form, the other side puts in their objections to the changes and says what they say. And there's replies to that, etc. cetera. Um, so that's all a, a standardized form. Um, and you have to get it signed off by the court eventually uh, you know in the in the previous version uh, you could just agree it but this appears to be the case that you have to get it signed off by the court um, as um, as a variation uh, significant developments downwards are you ever going to do that I don't think I've ever seen a budget go dramatically down um, but I suppose the argument would be well it's mandatory it says you must do it so you should do it um, it codifies the decision on the face of it in sharp and blank, which uh, Master Chief Master 
um, Marsh in the, in the Chancery Division uh, effectively said, well, look, you can agree, you, you, the court can order a variation, which is in effect a retrospective increase in relation to costs that have already been incurred. So it's not prospective only. And that is specifically in CPR 3.15a subparagraph six, where the court makes an order for variation, may vary the budget in related to that variation, which had been incurred prior to the order for variation, but after the cost management order. So sharp and blank appears to be apparently deliberately um, codified in the rules. Um, there is a very interesting provision buried in the new practice direction um, about uh, oppressive behaviour and gives the court a discretion in relation to oppressive behaviour. Let me just get the wording because it's fascinating, I think. Uh, paragraph 13 of the practice direction says any party may apply to the court if it considers that another party is behaving oppressively in seeking to cause the applicant to spend money disproportionately on costs and the court will grant such relief as may be appropriate. Uh, now, what does oppressively mean? Uh, it presumably, it's quite a strong word, presumably it's, it's more than unreasonably, um, but, 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 but we'll have to see what oppressively means. And what is the sanction in this? Grant such relief as may be appropriate. Do you have to show causation that your costs have increased by X amount because of this oppressive behavior and therefore your budget should be allowed to increase by that same amount? Or is it just more of a kind of punitive sanction that the court says your behavior is outrageous, you're just gonna pay X because uh, that's what you should pay. Um, we don't know. I don't know what the province of this was as to why it's in there or, or, or what it's doing there. Um, but there it is. Um, it, uh, it should be borne in mind. But no doubt litigation will follow. Indeed. I, I Interesting. Um, oh, sorry, Andy, go first. If disproportionate is so well understood, why not use that instead of oppressive? seems to me you know i don't see why you should really have to get into uh conduct arguments about that um i mean does oppressive mean that if there's you know there's a the, the, there's a david and goliath situation totally, that yeah. you know only goliath can 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 be oppressive or can david be oppressive even though he's a little chap against the big corporation exactly david sometimes can be oppressive if david is funded <laughs> absolutely yeah. or or just put in uh, or, or or exactly Exactly. The other thing you, you might have is just two different approaches. You might have a really nerdy solicitor on one side or team on one side saying, oh, the costs have gone up a bit. We better put in for a variation because the, uh, the rules say we must. Yeah. Um, and someone on the other side is pretty laid back and says, oh, we're really not worth bothering with this one. And uh, I'm being oppressed <laughs> if it happens yes. repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the I think the large sections of the profession believe they're being oppressed by the budgeting regime. Full stop. <laughs> and the other side all the time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. I, I must admit I was rather late to the realization that this was uh, uh, sharp and blank brought into the rules um, by a sleight of hand. And and my only thing about precedent here is that I believe that they've missed a, an opportunity to require parties to put in relevant information, which wouldn't have made the form more burdensome, which is to explicitly report how much of the previous agreed or approved budget has been spent so far, so that you know how much has already been spent, plus how much extra needs to be spent. Now, I would have thought that was material information that the court would want, I thought the court would value and that would help to guide a decision. Um, but it can be. Uh, it, it they should have got you to be the form, Andy. They should have got you to do it. Um, Just like the new form bill of costs. They should have got you to do this. Precedent. Oh, we, we weren't asked. <laughs> <laughs> it just appeared. Um, so I mean, I like initially we liked it. We thought, oh, that's good because you know it adds up. It makes sense. It's a it's a standard form. Standardisation is good because we've been frustrated by a different party's approach to doing it and sometimes it's convoluted and it's difficult to unravel um, but the more I look at it the less I like it I must say in, in, in certain respects and yes um, I think prompt is going to be the the main ground of objection um, and I, my 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 view on it really is is that it's less to do with the numbers 
and more to do with um, the assumptions. So in terms of things like the alerts that should be going off um, in parties' offices, um, should be when assumptions appear to be, to be superseded, expanded, replaced, um, or disposed of, um, because those are the triggers to a budget variation. Um, you, there's always a lag. If you're just looking at work in progress figures, there's a lag anyway. You don't not, you don't, you're perhaps not looking at those work in progress figures alongside data and information and judgment about how far through that phase have we reached. And in any event, if you just were lowballed inadvertently first time round, that's not a reason to get a variation anyway. I think, you know, the, the, the decisions have always been clear about that. It's always been about a change in material circumstances that, 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 um, that, that, that have led to it. Um, so I, I think it's, a it's been a long time getting to the, the nub of the, the, the issues about cost budgeting, if cost budgeting is going to work properly, which is to have a fully functioning variation um, procedure that is understood by people is not too burdensome. And I think this is in some respects too woolly and in other respects too burdensome. So it hasn't it hasn't reached the sweet spot or anything like it yet. Does does re-emphasize though, of course, just the, the, the fundamental point that you must keep tabs on the budget and how you're doing compared to the budget. I mean, it, you know, it's something we knew already, but now it's in the rules and there's a must attached to it. It just, you know, underlines just how important that, that exercise is being carried out all the time. It could also be the death knell for good reason applications, couldn't it? Because it yeah. seems to me that's the first area where it's going to be fought out. I mean, I do hope that's not the case in terms of good reason to depart downwards for reasons like that such and such didn't happen. You know, because yeah. hopefully in most cases that is just a statement of the being obvious, you know, and you don't want some pedant have to waste time on some pedantic argument to say, oh, yeah, but once you knew that, you should have applied for a downward budget variation. Yeah, I mean, I can see those arguments being run, you know, yeah, and, exactly. you know, I mean, frankly, what's source for the goose is source for the gander. I mean, you know, the, the fact is that neither party are going to make applications to reduce their budgets, are they? Well, except they, when they know they're going to lose. Exactly. True. Yeah, exactly. But normally when they know they're going to lose, they you know, they're, not, they're, they're, they're not going to send out the message that they're going to lose <laughs> by revising their budgets, I guess, <laughs> downwards. <laughs> That would be a, a that would be a tactical consideration around budgeting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I have to get informed consent from the client. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cost well, jokes are just the best, aren't they? <laughs> on that um, on that happy note, um, <laughs> I, it's been a real pleasure to for the three of us to meet up again uh, virtually, and I hope um, it's been informative to all of you who are watching. Um, if you've got any queries, then by all means email Practico um, and they will either be dealt with by Practico or passed on to Alex um, for his views on, on a particular point. Um, so just it remains to me to say thank you very much for participating in this process. Thank you. And thanks very much for spending the time with us, Alex. That's been great. Thank you. No, thanks a lot. Enjoyed it. Yeah.